Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Barbara Kruger, is an artist. She works in text, mostly. Big, bold letters, usually in white over a ribbon of red. The text is often superimposed over black and white photos, pictures that look like they could have come from mid-century advertisements. The messages say stuff like, your body is a battleground, or we don't need another hero, or don't be a jerk. If that doesn't ring a bell yet, you can find thousands of samples of her work on the internet. Maybe the fonts and colors remind you of something. The Supreme logo, that Instagram filter, it all started with Barbara Kruger. But have you seen Kruger's art in person? She does a lot of installation work these days. That's a fancy way of saying that her work just kind of consumes entire rooms, huge rooms, giant walls, big block letters taking up every inch of every flat surface you can see. Phrases like, Belief plus doubt equals sanity. Cell phones. Whose body? Whose beliefs? Her work isn't prescriptivist. It's almost an experience. It asks you to engage with the world. It makes you think and question yourself. She's one of my favorite artists. I'm so excited to talk with her. Barbara Kruger, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. It's great to be here. What is your uh, beef with serifs? No beef. No beef. No. Have you ever worked? Have you ever worked with serifs? I feel like your uh, your commitment to Futura ha- has been so extraordinary for so long. I worked with serifs for many years when I was a young designer at Condé Nast, um, Caslon, Bodoni, Baskerville. But actually, I've been using mostly for my installations Helvetica Ultra Compressed for the past few years. I still dip into Futura. Futura, I think, is the. I think that's the typeface in our logo. I think we put that in Futura. Yeah, it's pretty universal. Is that what you wanted out of it? That kind of universality? No, I just uh, I got my training as an editorial designer, and when magazines were still sort of. sentient or (laughs) available. And uh, if you didn't get people to look at the page, you were fired. Uh, Not literally, but. And I found that the sans serif just cuts through the grease. And also, I spent my young years in New York, and the tabloids were an important visual force, and you had sans serif addressing you in that. And uh, yeah, I sort of just like the clarity, the reach out and touch someone-ness of it. You had only gone to art school for a little while before you started working. Why did you leave art school? Well, my family didn't have a pot to f*** in, and we just didn't have very much money. And uh, I got a scholarship or two, but it really couldn't sustain it. And um, after my first year and a half at Parsons, after Syracuse, I just felt like um, I think I was almost 19. It was sort of time to get a job and support myself. 
what led you to want to go to art school? You went to you went to regular college for a brief. I went to Syracuse that, right? for a year. I felt like a Martian. Um, Why did you feel like a Martian? Uh, class issues. Um, just I didn't belong there in many ways. Um, I went there because I had heard it had a good art department. I didn't think I was going to be an artist, but I was always looking at fashion illustration and started out actually doing small fashion illustrations for Seventeen and Mademoiselle and um, wasn't trained as a designer either. And I'm kind of an autodidact in just about all, actually. Did you have the idea when you got to art school that you were going to be a fine artist, or were you still focused on the idea that this was, you know, like a trade? The fine artist thing was totally intimidating to me. Um, When I was young, the art world, one version of it, the main version of it was 12 white guys in lower Manhattan. So there was really no way I could see myself clear through that. Um, after about a year and a half, I left Parsons, and I got a job first as a billing clerk, and um, then a few months later, I got hired at Condé Nast as a low-level called back-of-the-book designer. What was your job? I laid out what was called the back of the book. They weren't big editorial spreads. They were turns, they were called. They were narrow columns, which you laid out the type and um, fit the photo in, or I did an illustration. And after a while, I got promoted to doing main spreads and work with some photographers. What was the like physical process of doing that? I mean, I ask that as somebody who's been desktop publishing since... I was six, and I got Broderbund print shop or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, what was the what were you doing to lay out those jump pages at the back of the magazine or whatever it was? Paste up. It was old fashioned paste and um, sort of dummy type, and I would set the type both for back of the book and later when I became um, when I became the main book designer. It was dummy type, and basically the copywriters would write to the amount of text that you had allotted them. And it was interesting because um, my job as a designer slowly morphed incrementally into my work as an artist. It's wild to me to think that the, that the process went design first, text second. I was imagined. I mean, I remember the from the brief time that I worked at a college newspaper, I remember the inverted pyramid that you're supposed to always put the least important stuff last, and that's because they might need to lop it off for space. But the idea that the, that the magazine is like first an aesthetic object that is then filled with textual information uh, to the specifications of the aesthetics is wild. Yeah, well, it was a catalog for color advertising. You know, that's the revenue stream for what is now an almost archaic practice. I say with some degree of sadness to a degree. You know, it's not like I look at women's magazines. I don't really. But uh, nevertheless, being part of that was was interesting to me and informed my work, both on a visual level, on a level of class. It was an anthropology for me to enter into this world that I felt so marginal in to begin with. You know. What did you learn about aesthetics from working in such a – in an environment that has such kind of concrete goals – you know, boost ad pages, boost circulation. 
I think in the art department, we were mainly concerned with making the most visually effective, seductive, and satisfying to us article as possible. So it really, we didn't feel sort of the hard sell drivenness of that, which was nice. So what changed? What led you to give yourself permission to explore making artwork, you know, for the sake of making artwork, whatever defines fine art. I'm, you're an art professor. You're, oh, I don't even know the yeah. fine art, whatever labels, <laughs> you, know, you know, Whatever the thing was that you were unable to yeah. do before because you felt like it just, you weren't included in it. Because, it was not a possibility. Because all of us are in some ways products of the culture that constructs and contains us. And there were changes uh, that were reflected in our everyday lives, you know, in the so-called media, in how the world was working on a social and material level. And uh, slowly but surely, the ability to want to objectify experience, to visualize, textualize, musicalize your experience of the world really seemed to be coming available to more and more people. And that's why... I um, felt, along with a number of my colleagues, that uh, that we could call ourselves artists, which was something that was not always easy or available. You know. What were the exact material conditions? What what were you making your early pieces out of, and how were you making them? Well, they were pay stubs, which of course came straight from my experience at at magazines, and uh, they were about eight by ten, nine by twelve. And then I would blow them up. and um, In like a regular photography lab? Yeah. High photo, 52nd Street. East 52nd. No longer there, obviously. And uh, yeah, that's what I did. And of course, as uh, technology changed, I started working digitally. And that had its huge advantages and some disadvantages too, but huge advantages, much less expensive. What was the first thing that you made in that style that you felt like, oh, this this is like getting where I want it to get. Like this is having an effect on people. People are responding to this. I had my first – well, I had shown at alternative spaces in New York, uh, Franklin Furnace, uh, The Kitchen. I had curated a show at The Kitchen called Pictures and Promises, which was a display of artists' work who dealt with um, images and text, both in their own work and how it connected to more commercial advertising structures. Uh, but I think the first time I had shown work um, with both image and text was at PS1 in New York. And then my first gallery show of that work was here with Larry Gagosian in 1981, and I think I had two shows with Larry out here. And um, then um, showed them in in New York. Um, when I showed in New York, I sold the show out totally. I think I made $150 on each of those. You know, you sort of had to split the cost of 
you know, everything, and I paid for the frames and the prints. This was a long time ago. But I had no complaints because none of us thought we would ever sell work. And we became part of um, a conversation with certain critics. And, you know, the art world is a very, like any other subculture, a complicated anthropology. And I think that the reason why you and I are talking here today is always um, weird and dicey confluence of, you know, historical circumstances and um, sometimes hard work, insistence, and fortuitous social relations. Where do the pictures in your work come from? Well, initially, you know, everyone thought they were really old. But, you know, when you convert stuff to black and white, they always <laughs> look old. Uh, originally, I would sort of cruise, you know, magazines and almanacs and old books and newer books. And, of course, uh, now that kind of sampling is everywhere – um, of course, there are duels and contestations around issues of so-called intellectual property, which in so many cases is just a euphemism for corporate control. Uh, it's not like I'm against all kinds of copyright. I'm not, but I do believe in a kind of creative commons notion. Um, I'm not that proprietary about stuff um, because – the way images travel and words and ideas and sounds travel in culture has been accelerated so through our online lives. You'll hear the rest of my conversation with Barbara Kruger after a short break. Stay with us. Still to come, on top of being a super famous artist, she's also a professor at UCLA. She'll tell me why she finds it to be such a rewarding job. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, REI. REI believes that a life outdoors is a life well-lived. And they have for 80 years. So check out their podcast, Wild Ideas Worth Living, for inspiring stories of people and taking the road less traveled. Hear from explorers, athletes, authors, and experts in the field. Follow how they're taking wild ideas and making them a reality every day. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Castlemont High is different from a lot of other high schools. This student, he got shot four times. I was just standing outside and like, hag of bullets. He held the gun up to my head. I'm Sam Sanders. One year after Parkland, we talk to kids who face gun violence every single day. Listen on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Is there a dog in a car at a bar on the street? Yay! I'm Allegra Ringo, a small dog owner. My dog Pistachio howls when she's excited. And I'm Renee Culvert, a big dog owner. My dog Tugboat tips over when he's sleepy. And we co-host a podcast called Can I Pet Your Dog that airs every Tuesday. We bring you all things dog. Yes, dog news, dog tech, dogs we met this week. We also have pretty famous guests on butt legs. We're not going to let them talk about their projects. No. Just want to hear about those dogs. We don't want to hear about your stuff, only your dogs. So join us every Tuesday on Max Fun. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm talking with Barbara Kruger. She's an artist whose work shows in museums all around the world. So I once went to this radio workshop at a radio conference with this woman who was a very accomplished radio consultant. And one of her big jobs was working for the ABC in Australia, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. And she had, I think they have a hybrid commercial public system there, sort of like here. And 
she had boosted the ABC News ratings like 25% a year or something like that. And she had done it. Essentially, she had one insight, at least in this thing, which was write everything in the second person. <laughs> everything, huh. everything you do should be a direct address to the listener that is framed in the context of the listener. Right, like like morning television is, you know, mm -hmm. you can you could make these brownies in this amount of time, or what do the new tax rules mean for you, or whatever, right? And there was this part of me that was very resistant to the idea that one cool trick could revolutionize my profession. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like I'm very hostile to one cool trick. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, as I was watching this, I was like, geez. Yeah, this probably works. This probably has a huge impact on the way that the information, even just in a news context, is received and the way people relate to it. Like, this is a big deal. And your work is often directly addresses the person who is consuming it, um, whether through the whether through the use of the second person or by kind of implicating or including them in the group that the piece is talking about, that kind of thing. Um, was that always the case? Well, it's especially true in my video work uh, where people are speaking directly at the viewer or directly at each other and you're in the middle of that. You know, it's always been something that I've used. But again, it's something that comes out of magazine work you're addressing a reader, but also if you grew up with television, um, which the news was direct address, or a certainly online life and YouTube or, or whatever, you are addressing the camera. Many people are. And now with Instagram and selfie culture, it's so much about that, so much of a sort of uh, collision between narcissism and voyeurism, you know. But I like to engage those sort of pronoun shifts. And, well, I mean, am, am I moving too much? That's no, not at all, not in the slightest. Mm -hmm. You have no reason to feel self conscious. Okay. All you're right, doing I'm thinking a, of the sound. You're doing a great job, oh, much better than I. I will not. The just I will not be listening to this. I mean, the sound <laughs> of my own voice. This is like. Anyway, okay. So what do you like about directing the work so straight at the audience or roping the audience in so directly? You know, I can't even say I like it. You know, it's just um, a way of making meaning, you know, and um, sometimes it works better than others. I see all my work as a series of attempts and... Um, you know, some people like it, some people don't. You know, you can't be everyone's image of perfection. I'm just trying to um, do the strongest, most powerful work that I can. Do you think about how the the work will be received by people who are looking at it when you are creating it? Or even how you would like for it to be received? I think about the meanings it possibly might be be making. I try to be vigilant about that. Um, but, you know, you can't know it all, you know, and um, you can't put yourself in the subject position of everyone who looks at your work. I try to be aware of that. And, of course, you know, 
it's better to be recognized and appreciated than demonized. But, you know, I've always said that no work of art, no book, no piece of music, no building is as brilliant and major and extraordinary or as damaged and minor and failed as it's written to be. You know, so much judgment is based on these extremities of hyperbole. And um, I, there's a lot of praise that I might dismiss because I never make those claims for my work. And a lot of reckonings and negativity that I feel sometimes might be right and sometimes are just part of a kind of pathology of envy. I feel like you must be in part trying to change the world in some way, right? Oh, like, God, I've never, I would never make those claims. I, Absolutely I mean, like, not. One, so like you, one of your most, <laughs> one of your most famous pieces is a, a woman's face in split down the middle, top to bottom. And it's in negative on one side and positive on the other side. And it says, your body is a battleground. And this was originally a poster that you made for a march in the late 1980s, March on Washington. 1989, yeah. Uh, in the late 1980s. Like you, you make that work in part to move people to take an action. Right? But it, it's not about – I would never say it's about changing the world. I mean that to me, that kind of heroic <laughs> – well, well, you're definitely allergic to corniness and no, that would be a corny way to put that, it. But. No, but that, that kind of heroic idea of the artist as mediator between God and the public and the ability to change the world. I, I just couldn't make those kind of claims. I, I do feel that when I made that poster, I – had originally approached some organizations about doing it for them, but they didn't know who the hell I was. So I did it myself. And some of my students from the independent study program of the Whitney Museum in New York, we all went out at night and put them up at two in the morning in those, you know, and all around the city. And uh, later on, I did a work without the um, instructions for the march. But uh, again, I just saw that as uh, one of many activities from so many people who were trying to make this march happen. And the bittersweetness of being at that march in 89 and sort of feeling so sad and crying because I had been at a march when I was much younger in the 70s, the only time I had ever been to Washington. And now we're still fighting the same battles around bodies, you know, and not just women's bodies. The body is a battleground in the most general sense. But in this sense, of course, around reproductive rights. So here it is again. And it's um, so sad and ongoing. But never did I think that my work would change the world. I'm not being disingenuous and saying, oh, poor me, I do what I do, you know, whatever. You know, there's a big space in between there where you're sort of fueled by both um, insistence, ambition, and self-doubt. And again, I've said before, uh, you know, belief uh, plus doubt equals sanity on a certain level. One without the other is kind of scary. I was listening to an interview you did on uh, my friend Rico Galliano's show a few years ago. Uh, it sadly, sadly, is no longer a show. And you kind of offhandedly mentioned how much you like Howard Stern. I am no longer 
ever surprised when anyone tells me that they love Howard Stern. Well, now everybody does it. But for those of us who were early adapters, you know, uh, you know, I'm talking about very early on. I used to listen in New York in the early 80s and um, remember when he first came here to L.A., I wrote an article for Esquire and did the cover on him. And um, I remember him it was his first cover, starting to read from it to Robin. And I'm thinking, I'm listening to this. I'm thinking, oh, my God, don't please. Because he's reading and he said, oh, I think she likes me. And then the next sentence was like, slap, you know, it's like, oh, my God. But he was a very different person. then. it's like 30 years of psychoanalysis. He's not the same rageful person he was then. I feel like I don't have maybe don't have the emotional energy. For He's a terrific interviewer. I mean, more and more of the show is about sort of celebrity interviews or people who are trying to make something that they've done, you know, visible to the public. And he's a great interviewer, but I still prefer the banter between all the folks in the studio as opposed to the celebrities. What do you like about it? About the banter? Yeah. I, I think that he's... Um, very smart, witty, funny guy with a great grasp of the goof. And I think the interaction with the people he works with is both based on admiration and abject humiliation. And I think that his sort of, especially the earlier shows, the brutal anthropology of showing just how low people will go uh, was a sort of forerunner of... Um, the reality television that we're seeing today and the need for people to constantly be either on a screen or to be seen through a screen or to look through a lens. When you teach students now, what you do at UCLA, what do you want them to leave with, given that you got a, you know, a, only a very brief time in the, in the ivory tower as a student yourself? Well, first of all, I should say I love teaching at a public university, and I would not be teaching if it wasn't that if that wasn't the case. There's also a difference between the graduates and the undergraduates. It's a very competitive school, graduate, very competitive undergraduates. It's a thrill that so many of my students are, are first generation to go to college, first generation to speak English, um, and I, I. I just uh, really enjoy uh, the time that I'm spent that I'm spending there with both the students and the great colleagues that I have in the department. Uh, Los Angeles has a history of being uh, a place where part of the sort of mo, the job description for an artist, was that you teach, not because uh, it's a part-time job, but because it's part of your practice. Because there are so many art schools here and great universities that have art departments. So it really is um, a part of the work. And uh, being in a public university uh, makes it even richer and more rewarding. So what do you want them to leave your class with, especially undergrads who might not even have a, you know, by the time you get to graduate art school, you've got some ideas about uh, who you are as an artist and what you want to be as an artist, even if they might change later. But when you're an undergrad, you're still really finding your feet, I imagine. Many of the undergrads will not be artists. They'll be mathematicians or architects or, or engineers because it's an art department, you know. Uh, but some of them will be artists, and some of them are so young. And the exhibitions that they're doing in the gallery at school are so, so good 
and uh, I'm it's so satisfying as a teacher and also to remember my short time in school how um an instructor had the power to um to give you an okay yes you can do this or yes you have some self-worth or uh yes i believe that you have ability and it sort of was uh really important for me and i never um i never forget that when i'm working with students Barbara Kruger, thank you so much for taking all this time to come and be on Bullseye. It was so, so cool to get to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Barbara Kruger, if you live in a town with a contemporary art museum, odds are they have her work on display somewhere. If you live in Los Angeles, you can go to the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, where her work is permanently on display at the Broad Contemporary. Um, It's actually an elevator, a breathtaking elevator. She also has a breathtaking, enormous outdoor wall at the Geffen Contemporary at MOCA in Little Tokyo in Los Angeles that I actually just made a field trip to go see with my seven-year-old daughter. And uh, it's, it's amazing. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Kevin, our producer, is back this week. Nice to see you, Kevin. From a trip to Italy, he tells us that Italian parks are not as interesting as MacArthur Park. In fact, in his experience, which is extensive, nearly two weeks, they are boring and cold and rainy. So take that, Italian parks. P.S. Los Angeles was very cold and rainy while you were gone. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We have help from Casey O'Brien here in the office. Our thanks to Raghu Manavalan for helping while Kevin was gone. Raghu did a great job. Our production fellow is Shana Deloria. Special thanks to the folks at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles for putting us in touch with Barbara Kruger. Our interstitial music comes from Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. Thanks, as always, to Dan for sharing it. Our theme song comes from the Go Team. Thanks to them for letting us use it. And did you know we've been making this show for more than 15 years? All of our past interviews, pretty much all of our past interviews, are available for free on the Internet on our website at MaximumFun.org. Many, many, many of them are in our podcast feed, which goes back years at this point. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Uh, We post our interviews at YouTube as well, so it's an easy way to find and share them. If you like, just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.